Who's your hero? Does someone come to mind? Most heroes in the world, unfortunately, look better from a distance than they do up close, as when you often get closer, they tend to disappoint. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that person that's full of quiet, spoken wisdom. Maybe they have seasoned maturity. They always seem to bring a new perspective, an added depth to whatever decision you are making. Perhaps it's their integrity or their generosity or their determination. Perhaps it's because they never trumpet their own achievements but leave them unannounced for others to discover. Perhaps it's their priorities. God first, family second, everything else third. Perhaps it's their great humility. I'm not sure who might come to mind for you, but for me, I already spoiled it, didn't, it? didn't I? It's, it's my dad is one of my heroes. These are some of the earlier pictures I could find. I probably could have scrounged around, but most of them were at my parents' house. These were a few that were on my computer. On the side there is when I was in Ponape, and they flew 9,000 miles to come see me, and I got a, a haircut from dad that I desperately needed. Then in these pictures, let's see, we have the birth of Lauren, our first child. Uh, we have attained a GC session together, doing a quartet uh, with a few people you may recognize there. Certainly our wedding. The top picture there is, or top left picture is at my ordination some time ago. Dad also taught me to enjoy and, and love travel and the outdoors and hiking and and backpacking. Here they are with my family not too long ago, and this is uh, when I was younger. The smaller one there is my little brother Stephen. I remember going with dad at that age, but I didn't have that picture to share. Snow skiing and many other adventures with dad. I can also say my dad is a renaissance man. There's very little of anything that he cannot do or that, that he doesn't take on. He can rebuild wrecked cars, make his own clothes, woodworking, house remodeling. He's a theologian. It really doesn't matter what question you have. You are remiss if you don't check with dad first. Because even if you've thought of seemingly everything, he might add in one little thing or one question that you say, oh yeah, maybe I should do a little more research. Sadly, humble heroes are getting dangerously thin anymore. But what makes my dad my hero is his love and connection with Jesus and the impact that has had on everything else. Exit my dad. Oh, here we are working on a couple porches on two, diff two different houses. Here's my graduation. I'm actually wearing my dad's gown when I graduated with my doctorate. And then he even helped me some with, with James's pine box. But exit my dad, enter Elijah. Here is a Bible hero, if you will. A man with humble beginnings, as we will see, who seems to emerge out of nowhere, but makes a significant contribution to God's plan for his people and becomes one of Israel's most famous heroes. And again, where was his greatness rooted? but in the love of his God, his jealousy for the glory of God. 
But before we look at the life of Elijah, and that says part one there, we're going to be looking at his life for many sermons. I thought I might just cram it all in to one and have you here till 5.30, but I've decided to make it a series. So this is the first part of this series. But before we look at the life of Elijah, I think we need to look at the context of Elijah, which is significant. I'm going to leave this on the screen for a while. I hope you can somewhat read. I know that's very small on the right-hand side. But for well over 100 years, the Israelites lived under the reign of three kings, and we know them well. They're at the top right of this table. We have Saul, we have David, and we have Solomon. And that was the beginning of the monarchy. So we have that anchored in our minds pretty well, don't we? But if you read your Bible beyond that, if you're like me, you can get rather confused. Why? Well, at the end of Solomon's life, there was a civil war that broke out, and then you had what there is on the map. You had the kingdom of Israel, or the northern kingdom in the blue, and you'll see on the left side of the chart is Israel and all of those kings and monarchs and so on, and then you have the kingdom of Judah, or the southern kingdom, which is in orange, or on the right side of the chart here. There's Judah. Put that up there. And it's in the southern kingdom that we find the city of Jerusalem. The part that's confusing to me when I read the passages is that they are co-ruling at the same time. And sometimes they're even telling you this one reigned during that one's reign and that one reigned during this one's reign. And I just can get very confused. And so I put them up on the chart. And where we're going to land for this series is right there in the middle, Ahab and Jezebel. And so that can maybe give you a little bit of an anchor point, if you will, in all of this. Israel, or the northern kingdom, had 19 monarchs. All of them were wicked. And that's when the part of where we'll find our story of Ahab and Jezebel in the middle. Judah, the southern kingdom, had 17 monarchs. Eight of these followed the Lord to some degree. Nine, however, were wicked. As far as the timeline, Israel ended with the Assyrian invasion in 722 B.C. And Judah ended with the Babylonian invasion in 586 B.C. And I realize that's kind of small there on the screen. But at least perhaps that will give us some kind of a context, some kind of a framework. What happened? Well, we had the Exodus and God delivered his people and he brought them out of bondage and he worked and he labored and he labored and he worked. And through various prophets and through various men, he brought them into the promised land. And now we've come to the point where there's been civil war, where everybody has been broken up in these two camps, if you will. And we see major backsliding of God's people. And again and again, God sent many prophets to both Israel and Judah in an attempt to bring his people back, to bring them to repentance. I can only imagine the heart of God after all he's invested and this is what he now has to show for his remnant people. So I'm going to read you a few excerpts. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible. The first one is in 1 Kings chapter 13. Eventually we're going to land in chapter 17. But in 1 Kings 13 verse 33 it says, Jeroboam, the first ruler of Israel, and we're just going to stick to that side for this morning. 
Jeroboam made priests of the high places from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. So you may be asking, what are the high places? And other places it talks about the high places and the Asherah poles. Well, the high places, it comes from the, the, the root word of the ridge of the back of an animal. It would be the, the back or ridge of a mountain. It was a high place. We like to hike on Saturday afternoons to high places, something with a view, with an overlook, and it's a spiritual setting for maybe you and I, and it was for them too, except they twisted it and it became a place of idol worship. And you might sit there and think, well, idol worship, well, what was the attraction to idol worship? Well, when you start to intermarry with people that are not part of God's people, it can happen this same way today. They say, we like to do things this way. Or I always remember that in our culture, we did it that way. And they start to draw the hearts of their men or their spouse away from the Lord. And they start introducing more and more of this idolatry. And let me tell you, it wasn't just bowing down to stone or wood or something else. But they got a little more creative than that. We could say the devil got a little more creative than that. Oftentimes, this worship involved sexual experiences that were part of the worship service. And these would take place at these high places. To appease the gods, they had to go through different rituals and practices. And this was alluring. This was exciting. This was new. This was different. And besides, anyway, God's Old Testament sanctuary service, it's, it's dull. We've seen it before. We're tired of that. We want something new, pastor. We want to attract those that are out there. And they're having services that are far more exciting than ours. Have mercy. Also along with appeasing their gods, oftentimes they made their children walk through fire. Sometimes they even sacrificed their children. They would cut themselves and make all kinds of display as we will see in our own story later on. And can you imagine how this broke the heart of God? And what's so startling to me is that we're not just talking about secular people out there. In my mind, to some degree, they get a pass because they don't know better. But here we're talking about the people of God with the temple of God, with the word of God, knowing full well how to worship God and turning their backs on that to go to a high place. And it broke the heart of God. So that was Jeroboam. 1 Kings chapter 15, verse 26, if you're following along in your Bibles, it says, Nadab did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin, which he made Israel sin. Now, Nadab only reigned for two years before he was assassinated by his successor. Isn't this nice? Basha reigned for 24 years and did evil in the sight of the Lord. His son Elah became king, but Zimri, commander of of half of his chariots conspired against him and assassinated him and his entire household and did not leave a single male of, or his relatives or his friends alive. And that's all in 1 Kings chapter 16. Then we get to Omri. 
1 Kings 16, verse 21. And we read, Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord and acted more wickedly than all who were before him. If we were to do some kind of a timeline of culture today, if we even just did some kind of a timeline of the media in our culture today, could it be said that this movie back here as bad as it was, we could move on along the timeline. We could say this movie was worse than anything that had ever been shown before. Could we do that? Amen. And then could we still continue to move down the timeline as we'll see here in the story? Because Omri has a son and it's going to say the same thing about his son. It's going to say, and he was worse than anyone before. So do you see the trend of what's happening? The degradation of society? It's almost as if there's this rush of, oh, they did that. Let me show you what I will do. And it slips further and further and further away from God's ideal. It says he walked in the way of Jeroboam, talking about Omri, and in his sins, which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel with their idols. So then Omri dies, and his son Ahab ruled in his place. But if you're looking for the verse for him where it says he was even worse than his father, it's in 1 Kings 16, verse 30, where it says he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. He led the people into the grossest heathenism. I imagine, you know, as I try and wrap my mind, how does a worship service go from worshiping the true God to having sexual experiences in the service? How does this happen? And I imagine the devil chuckles and says, slowly. We got time. But as one introduces a small piece, then there's another small piece and another small piece. I believe you could walk and march down here to where we are in the media today and say, how is it that entertainment has gotten to where it's gotten to? How did we get here? And I imagine the devil would say the same thing, slowly. Piece by piece, bit by bit, almost imperceptibly of the, the little adjustments, the little changes along the way until what used to be appalling is now just the norm. And we just can watch it and we can sit there and say, oh, well, you know, what can you expect? But it won't impact me, Pastor. I don't become desensitized. I have my antenna up. Well, then why don't you knock it off the back of your TV and turn it off? I know, we don't use antennas anymore. So think of it. Bloodshed, idol worship, the most debased ways, immorality, conspiracy, hatred, malice, murder, assassinations, all prevailed for six uninterrupted dark decades in Israel. This was the state of God's people. Not just the world out there. This was the church in here. His remnant. Interestingly enough, in chapter 16, not only is Ahab mentioned in the account, but his wife, Jezebel. Now, I'm sure the other kings had wives, but they do not get a mention, to which I would simply want to ask, how come? I would think there's two reasons how come. First of all, I think Jezebel was the dominant partner in this marriage. 
And we'll see that as we go along in this series. We're not going to necessarily unpack that today. But secondly, she was the one that initiated the Baal worship. 1 Kings 16, 31 says she was the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worship him. Baal worship, which originated with the Canaanites, had long existed in this area of the world, and while its influence was felt, it was with Jezebel that Baal worship was strongly promoted because she was a high priest of Baal. Prophets and Kings, page 114, tells us, This seductive form of idolatry exerted their baleful influence until well nigh all Israel were following after Baal. So why is she mentioned? Because in so many respects, she's the king of the day. And Ahab largely is her puppet. Later on in 1 Kings 21, 25, it says, There was none like unto Ahab who did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. Be careful, young men, who you marry. It makes a difference. Be careful, young ladies, who you marry. It makes a difference. I have... People come to me on occasion that will say, Pastor, will you marry me? And I say, she's not an Adventist girl. He's not an Adventist fella, but you are. And I say, I won't marry you. Well, will you counsel us at least? I am counseling you. Don't get married. And they say, well, I, I hear this oftentimes. Well, they're Baptists or they're Methodists. They're good Christian people, and I love them so much. To which God's word says, don't be unequally yoked unless you love them so much. Is that what it says? In fact, in my Bible, I didn't, wasn't prepared to share it this morning, but I have inserted a spirit of prophecy quotation that says, if they do not have an understanding of the truth of these times, you are not to bond yourself in marriage to these individuals. That tells me if they're not both Seventh-day Adventists. Oh, come on, pastor. What's the big deal? Yeah, what's the big deal when you decide to have kids and you want them to go to church on Sabbath and he wants them to go to church on Sunday or vice versa, whatever the arrangement is? Are you going to have your kids go to church two days every weekend? How long is that going to last? How's it going to work when you go to grandma's funeral and and she's just looking down on us? She's in a better place. Lord needed another member of his choir. And you say, that's not true. And the child says, wait, what? Huh, huh. It can become very challenging. And many in this room know already how challenging marriage can be. It can be very rewarding, but it can be challenging. You don't need this extra challenge. Be careful, young men, young ladies, who you marry. So in speaking of Ahab, Prophets and Kings goes on to say Ahab was weak in moral power. His union by marriage with an adulterous woman resulted disastrously both to himself and to the nation. Unprincipled and with no high standard of right doing, his character was easily molded by the determined spirit of Jezebel. 
Some commentators say she was Satan's woman of the hour. And Baal worship, with all of its seductive ways, found its way into the hearts of nearly all the people, Spirit of Prophecy says, nearly all the people. The people followed the example of the king and his court and gave themselves up to the intoxicating, degrading pleasures of sensual worship. And who is this Baal they were worshiping? Well, more specifically, he was the god of rain and the god of fertility, who controlled the seasons, the crops, the land. Hang on to that. That'll be an important piece. And so it's on this background that the message of Elijah comes. These were the days of Elijah. Anybody want to take his place as a prophet of God to this particular group of people? Anybody want to stand up and be counted in front of this audience? I'll be a prophet, perhaps, to somebody who's just right there so close and they just need a little, uh. This is not, however, that group. These people are steeped. Sexual sins, heathen practices, cult worship, and thinking, and ideas. Has his chosen simply forgot altogether that there's a living God? And in their apparent life of luxury and pleasure and entertainment, the reality is that there is a great famine in the land already. A famine for the faithful and true words of God. Where are they? A famine for men and women thick with the Almighty of God. Where are they? They think they are rich and increased with goods, but there is a famine in the land. Pay attention, Laodicean church. Amos chapter 8, verse 11 says, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor of thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Could it be in the last days God's people are again living in the lap of luxury with every form of pleasure and entertainment, and yet they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, blinded to their true heart condition, fat with the things of the world, but starving and impoverished for the word of the Lord. You see, owning a Bible is not at all the same as studying your Bible. How many Bibles are in your home? I don't even know that I could count. Between Elizabeth and I and all the kids, I don't know, maybe there's 30 Bibles. There's probably more in my office. Is that good enough? Afraid not. And could it be that in the last days, God's people are again living in the lap of luxury, but we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and don't even know it? Is there a famine in the land today? And so we get to our story. And you say, man, it's kind of late in the, the morning already. We're just starting to get to our story. Well, let me put you at ease. Today we're only reading the first verse. <laughs> but let me also warn you, I know how to stretch it out. Chapter 17, 
verse 1, and Elijah the Tishbite, first time he's mentioned, and Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Let's back up a little bit. Tishba, where is that? Well, the text says it was in Gilead, which is northern area east of the Jordan River. It's a place of solitude and outdoor life, a place of safety and quietness. But here, removed from all of the craziness, if you will, here God places a purpose in the heart of Elijah. As from a distance he observed the sad state of affairs of God's chosen people. Spirit of Prophecy says his whole life was devoted to the work of reform, to rebuke sin, to press back the tide of evil. You ever feel like that's where we are today? There is this tide. And how easy is it to press back a tide that is washing in? Is it a little overwhelming? Is it almost as if, how am I going to do this? How is this going to happen? I need more sandbags. I need more people. I need more infrastructure. The tide is coming in. But that was his role, to press back the tide of evil. And as he views the apostasy from his mountain retreat, he's overwhelmed with sorrow and pleads with God to do something. Visit them with judgments if you have to that they may be led to see their true heart condition, but do something. Sounds like the prayer of many parents. Lord, I don't know what's going to get the attention of my kids. They're lost. They're in the world. They're here. They're there. I don't know how to get them back. Do something. Do anything. If they need to hit their head on the foot of the cross before they fall down and look up, let it happen. And so what was the longing of Elijah's heart? That they repent, that they be restored, and that they be revived. James 5, 17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Now, wait a second, time out. I thought Elijah prayed earnestly that it would rain. Finally, the cloud and so on. Look, go look again and all that. We'll get to that. But this is not talking about that. It's saying he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months or three and a half years. So a couple things here. Elijah was a hero, but he was human. He had his challenges, he had his shortcomings, his times of doubt and discouragement, we will see later. But it says here, but he prayed earnestly. Friends, that's where the power is. Don't miss that. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Why? Because Baal was getting all the credit for the blessings of God. What could possibly arrest their attention? How could they be brought back to the true God? Maybe, just maybe, if it stops raining. And Elijah was impressed. Strike at the heart of their false God. Just like the 10 plagues in Egypt were no arbitrary plagues, but each plague affected important Egyptian deities, one after another, after another, after another, to try and topple the system. 
Let's do it again here. Let's show their gods to be false, that it may remind them of the true God, the living God. And so Elijah starts to pray and pray and pray for God's people, for God's kids. Testimonies for the Church, volume three, page 263, says it this way. Elijah's faithful soul was grieved. His indignation was aroused, and he was jealous for the glory of God. I don't know about you, but I love that line. He was jealous for the glory of God. There was one thing that was singular in the mind of Elijah, and that was the glory of God. That was supreme. That was paramount. That was of all importance to him. Fear God and give glory to him who made all things. Elijah was motivated by that singular idea. He was jealous for the glory of God. And I believe that was the, perhaps the single characteristic that makes Elijah a hero. He's jealous for the glory of God. He's not jealous for his reputation. He's not jealous for his own livelihood. He's not jealous for a life of ease. No, he has a laser beam focus. He's jealous for the glory of his God in a sex-jaded, morally twisted, self-centered world. So it says, Elijah's faithful soul was grieved. His indignation was aroused. He was jealous for the glory of God. And when he called to mind the great things that God had wrought for them, he was overwhelmed with grief and amazement. But all this was forgotten by the majority of the people. He went before the Lord with his soul wrung with anguish, pleading for him to save his people if it must be by judgments. He pleaded with God to withhold from his ungrateful people dew and rain, the treasures of heaven, the apostate Israel might look in vain to their gods, their idols of gold, wood, and stone. The Lord then told Elijah that he had heard his prayer and would withhold dew and rain from his people until they should turn unto him with repentance. Sometimes we call this tough love. But I find it interesting that truly, I believe God put this in the heart of Elijah, but then Elijah is praying to the God of heaven, do this thing for your people. And God finally relents and says, okay, I've heard your prayer. And the pen of inspiration describes how Elijah did not hesitate to obey, but set out at once and traveled night and day to Samaria because he was jealous for the glory of God. And upon his arrival, he passed right by the guards, apparently unnoticed, and stood for a moment before the astonished king. How did he do it? I don't know. Ever heard of a guy called the Handshake Man? You can Google him. He has a real name. It's Roger Weaver or something like that. But he got the reputation of being the handshake man because he could go past the Secret Service some way, somehow, and before they knew it, he was shaking the hands of the president. Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, both of the Bushes, he shook all their hands. How could he do this? He got a reputation for it. Handshake man. How did he get in? We don't know. But he goes right past everybody, and he's standing before the king. And he doesn't make any apologies for his abrupt appearance. Why? Because one far greater than the ruler of Israel has commissioned him to speak. 
what a prophet is, isn't it? A mouthpiece for God. And so Ahab and Jezebel, they're in control of the land. And Baal was the God they worship. But when Elisha bursts onto the scene, his very name stands as a rebuke. And what does his name mean? The Lord is my God. It's a good name. The Lord is my God. And so we read the passage again. And Elisha the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. Friends, Elijah is making a solemn pronouncement. Under whose authority? The Lord, the living God of Israel, before whom I stand. The posture of this standing in the presence of an important person indicates you are there to serve them. What do we say in our government? I serve at the pleasure of the president. Have you heard that phrase before? I haven't yet, but anyway. I serve at the pleasure of the president. And so when you stand, when he's saying, I stand in the presence of God, I'm here to serve. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to be his hands, his feet in whatever way. And so it's the same idea. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand ready to serve, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Notice it doesn't say days. It doesn't say weeks. It says years. I mean, this is a strong statement. This is a bold statement. This is bravery on the part of the man of God. How was he able to stand there and deliver that message, you may ask? It was strong faith in the unfailing power of God. And I believe it is an implicit confidence in the promises of God. He believed in his soul that God's word could not fail. And so at the risk of his reputation, at the risk of his future, at the risk of his very life, Elijah fearlessly fulfilled his commission like a thunderbolt from clear sky on a clear day. Kaboom! In fact, I don't think he could have made it in front of the king if he would have tried to be kind of weaselly and, you know, I'm thinking of Barney Fife, you know, and he's kind of shaking his gun or whatever he's doing. He would have never come in. But he has a boldness and a confidence and his head is up. He's walking with his head held high and it's like, this guy obviously belongs here. He must have been summoned. And then later in the conversation, how did he get in? I don't know, he wasn't supposed to be here. And he makes this declaration and just as quickly as he came in, he exits and he's gone. Before a King Ahab, wicked King Ahab, could come up with any response, he's just kind of, uh, and he's gone. And again, what was his motivation? I believe it was his jealousy for the glory of God. Interestingly, this shouldn't really have come as a surprise or a shock to anybody that knew their Bibles, but I guess that's kind of the catch here, isn't it? Nobody was reading their scrolls, I guess we could say. If they had, they might have seen this verse, Deuteronomy eleven thirteen. If you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land and its season and the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. If you just follow me and my happiness rules, 
And the devil likes to whisper, if you want to be happy, you just avoid all the rules, rebel against all the rules, forget all the rules. And you can try that. I think all of us here have at one time or another. Maybe even this week we thought, you know, the Lord knows what he's doing in most cases, but I think this is an exception and I'm going to do it this way. It says, I'll send grass to your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. If you just obey, if you just follow me with all your heart, take heed to yourselves lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land yield no produce and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. And we say, oh, the Old Testament is irrelevant to us today. Could that not be any more relevant to us today? Do you want the blessings of God? Then follow him and serve him with all your heart. Are you saying my life then will just be an easy paved? No, I'm not saying that. Elijah's life we're going to see is not easy and a road paved, but the joy of the Lord was his strength. He had peace when he put his head on his pillow or his rock or wherever he was. He saw the miracles of God. He was able to be part of something bigger than himself. And he knew at the end of it all, he would spend eternity with his Lord and Savior. No, my friends, it is far better to obey the word of the Lord and serve him with all your heart than to think that you know better. How does God describe his people today? Revelation 14, 12, three angels' message. It says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Sometimes we make it so complicated. But God is looking for a people who with patience and endurance will keep his commandments, all ten. To not pick and choose and then to have the faith of Jesus. Faith in the ability of Christ to save us amply, fully, entirely by God's grace to have the same quality of faith that Jesus had who demonstrated a living trust in the Father at any cost to himself. I mean, Jesus too, I believe, was jealous of the glory of God. And that's the Elijah message in a nutshell. It's the message of repentance, of restoration, and revival. Elijah preached it. John the Baptist preached it. And we are to preach it. And we'll talk more about that. But how are we to preach it? With a heart jealous for the glory of God, for his purposes, not my own, that the world will see more clearly who God really is. That he's a God of love and compassion and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. It's a call to come out of the world, to come out of sexual immorality, to come out of pleasure-seeking, out of opulence, out of worship of self, to come out of the witchcraft and spiritualism, to come out of materialism of this age, and to simply have a heart that is repentant and restored and revived. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Before the Lord returns a second time, there is an Elijah message to be proclaimed. And again, it's a call to repent, to be restored, and be revived. It's the message of salvation to a world that's in moral freefall. It's the message of Jesus, the message of 
hope and peace and joy unspeakable. And again, God is looking for people that are jealous for the glory of God, who will stand in the gap for people, who will be overwhelmed with grief for their friends and their family, their neighbors, their coworkers, and will fall on their knees and pray and pray and pray. What if Elijah had not prayed? What if he said, you know, I'm comfortable up here in my mountain retreat. I can't be bothered. And certainly I don't want to subject myself to anything that might possibly taint my perfect spiritual experience. So I just won't get involved. Friends, what would have happened? No, God needs men and women who are willing to stand in the gap. Willing to stand alone against the strongest forces of our time and without reluctance or embarrassment be jealous for the glory of God. May it not be said of us, this verse in Ezekiel 22, verse 30, so I sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. That's a sad verse, friends. In fact, I don't like that verse. I much prefer this one, Isaiah 6, verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. In 2021, the Lord is still searching for people who are jealous for the glory of God, friends who are unwilling to sit in their quiet mountain retreat and do nothing, who refuse to just dissolve into the background or blend into the scenery of this world, but will plead with the living God of the universe to act, to change things, to get people's attention. Did you see any of those signs during COVID that said, this is me, God speaking, are you paying attention? And maybe that lasted for a time, but now people are, are all too quick to try and get back to the norm. Is it the desire of our hearts that people repent, be restored, and revived? Friends, in an age of tolerance and compromise, may we not shrug our shoulders and be indifferent. But like Elijah, may we be willing to stand alone, to stand tall, to stand firm, and stand strong in the Lord and his word. I imagine many of you might be thinking, as I often do, but Lord, (laughs) there are people that are far more qualified. You ever had that thought? They're far more talented, far more gifted than I am. Don't you want to send them? Others might be saying, I'm a full-time mother right now. I'm struggling to get through school at the moment. Pastor, I'm just trying to make ends meet. That's why I'm working for jobs. What can I possibly do? And maybe it's not so much doing as it is being. Maybe it's not so much another thing on your to-do list, but a transformation of your own life that can't help but shine as you're jealous for the glory of God. Because I believe you can stand before God as Elijah did. 
And in so doing, say, I serve at the pleasure of the God of the universe. And you too can fall on your knees and you can pray. And you can pray in the morning. You can pray in the evening. You can pray during those late night feedings, mothers. You can pray during your commute. And why? Because you see what is happening around you. You see the apathy of God's people. And you see the remnant sleeping. And because you see the apathy in your own heart. And so you fall on your knees and you pray and you keep praying and you keep praying because you're jealous for the glory of God. And friends, your audience may be two toddlers, it may be three on your construction crew, it may be 150 in your school, or it may be the king of a nation, but I don't believe that so much matters as your willingness to pray, your desire for revival and reformation, and that you are jealous for the glory of God. And that that glory of God be revealed in your life, and in your church, and in your world. So that's the intro to our series. Amen. First verse of chapter 17. And you probably know the story. There's some interesting things yet to happen. One of which, as soon as he does this, he goes and hides for three and a half years. God provides for his needs, and then all of a sudden, it stops. He goes to a heathen woman for nourishment, and he gives her spiritual food. There's a lot of pieces here, but long before we even get to the fire coming down from heaven. But by God's grace, we're going to unpack this a little bit as we see what it means to be jealous for the glory of God as Elijah was. Dear Heavenly Father, we feel far too human to be the next Elijah. But we have that verse in James chapter 5 that he is human as we, but that he prayed fervently. And Lord, in prayer is power. Through prayer comes conviction. Through prayer comes enabling. And through prayer, he became so jealous for the glory of God, he just was longing and begging to be used. May that be our experience. By your grace is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.